All right. Welcome back to A Path Forward. And we have our our first field reporter, certainly out in the field. Mackie is back with us. Hi, Mackie. Hey. And, uh, what's up? What's up? <laughs> and you <laughs> tell us tell us where you are. So I have for the first time in in the twenty years that I've been coming here, we have uh, my significant other and I have rented a nice little two bedroom house on a semi quiet street. That's about as good as you can do here. And and um, where is here? We don't even know where here oh, excuse is. Excuse me. Iquitos, Peru is the largest city in the world without a road to it. So we're in the mid Amazon. <laughs> and I'm well, this neighborhood is called uh, Morona Cocha. Um, Cocha, here's your first little lesson yeah. in both Spanish and geology because this is a it's actually not a Spanish word, but a cocha C-O-C-H-A it's spelled, is what we back home would call an oxbow in the river. Because this is the largest city in the world without a road to it, because the floodplain is vast and they just can't build a road across this floodplain, which floods. So the river undulates and snakes its way. Just to give you an idea, at about 1,100 miles up the Amazon River, the elevation here is 382 feet. So on the coast of the Pacific coast, you hit 380 feet at about five miles in. So this is a th- more than a thousand miles in, which means that for the river to get to the ocean, to the Atlantic, it has to just weave back and forth like a giant snake. So from time to time, as the river goes down, these little oxbows, these little crescent-shaped sections of the river that's constantly changing become little lakes. And they have their own fish that live there, oftentimes like Zungaracocha is named after the Zungara fish that's endemic there. Um, So these coaches are, sometimes they're connected to the river, sometimes they're like little, little oxbow lakes. Wow. Um, so Morona Cocha, this neighborhood is, I'm a block from the river, uh, wow. the Rio Nanay. So, so the only way in is either, I assume the slow way is to come up the river by boat or no. to fly in by plane. Yeah, from Brazil. The other alternative is to up river from here is the next city up, which is by, you know, t- typical river boat. It's about five, four, four days on the river. And that's the city of Pucallpa. And Pucallpa actually has highways that connect it to Lima about 14 hours drive away. And that's, a, for the most part, a paved highway um, with dangerous corners and crazy people. Uh, <laughs> but it's paved anyhow. And they, so a lot of, let's say, traffic, including narco traffic, yeah. comes in and out of Pucallpa because you can get on the highway and just drive. Here, because it's, I mean, to go to the Atlantic down a thousand miles, you uh, essentially go from here into Brazil and you pass the, the Amazonian city and uh, of Manaus, Brazil, which a lot of people have heard of. And the only um, way to do that would be on the river. On the river. This wow. place is... Boats, large and small, sort of define the culture here. Uh, at one point, of course, it was dugout canoes and people stayed closer to home. 
but there is an amazing river traffic and these boats that go from oh from 15 to 50 feet long are made they basically these guys with chainsaws with long bars freehand saw lumber all day long they stand there and they slice boards with chainsaws and then they make those boards into these beautiful river craft um the the Greyhound bus version. This is called a Colectivo, which has just picture two rows of bent bench on either side, and you look at your neighbor. Um, the smaller ones will have seat thwartwise uh, seating in them, so you sort of got to climb your way back. But typically, um, your what time does the Colectivo leave? When there's enough people aboard to make it worthwhile. So it's a very <laughs> irregular kind of a system that works. It works. If you're in a hurry, then just buy the extra seats. Let's go. <laughs> wow. And, and how long would a trip or journey, you know, the average person ride in a boat like that? A um, couple hours one or to, longer? One to, four, one, one to four hours one way. Yeah. So this being the... Um, the city, there's almost half a million people here now, um, up from 400,000 because there's a tremendous influx of poor people from the river communities mm. who, are, who come to the city hoping for a better life and what they end up is in these, in these ghettos, essentially, wow. um, with very little in the way of utilities, but nothing in the way of rent. So it's we're facing a, a, a really big issue here of uh, maybe trying to figure out ways to make it make sense for these folks to go back to the communities on the rivers which they came from. And there are hundreds and hundreds of these small villages on the, on the various tributaries of the Amazon River that sort of all come together here and form the Amazon so-called. Um, we're at the conjunction of five rivers. This is a, a, a great picture. Wow, a conjunction of five rivers. It's a beautiful picture, and we'll uh, you know, maybe put up yeah. a picture of, of where you're at, but you've painted it nicely. Tell, tell us why you're there. What, what is the work, and what brings you to this place? Well, the reason I came here, like so many people that you'll see on the street originally 20 years ago, was, uh, was to become familiar with ayahuasca in the context the the uh, indigenous psychedelic visionary plant brew that is the all the rage here. <laughs> um, there is a a scene. There are tons and tons, and they're coming back now post COVID. Of uh, people from all over the world that come here to drink ayahuasca. Mm. That's what brought me here originally. But I've come back three or four times a year to. Uh, study plant medicine, the biodiversity of this place, um, one of the you know, greatest biodiversities, which means there are so many different kinds of plants, all crowding for position in the, in the forest. Um, so in that hubbub, so to speak, in that crowding for growing space, these plants produce a whole bunch of very interesting compounds. They're not doing it for our benefit. They're doing it for their own ecological advantage. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but what we do then is we look at uh, traditional uses, which is called ethnobotany, 
the ethnos of people, and botany is what do people do with plants? This is, includes food, but in particular medicines that are um, part of tradition. But it's also, since things are changing, and the mestizo, the mixed race culture here, and it's, it's, you know, it's Peruvians from elsewhere and indigenous people um, living together, raising families, having kids. Uh, it's so little pieces, it's folk knowledge. It's, you know, mm. there's um, a tremendous amount that's been lost, but there's still a lot that's very active that is, you know, part of everyday medicine in the, in the villages in particular. Yeah, talk a little bit about some of that folk knowledge and the, the people that, you know, I've, I've seen pictures of, you know, some video, we'll, we'll maybe, you know, can send some links to some of what you're, you're up to. Does that, what, I, at one point, I know it was Schulte Center, is there an umbrella somewhere that we might send folks that they understand that they can see some of this? And I want to, I want to hear about those folk knowledge specialists that you know in these I'm thinking particularly of these libraries of plant material of physical material would be so yeah. interesting so uh, our principal our nonprofit is called the Richard Evans Schulte Center for Amazonian Ethnobotanic Research a, a mouthful for sure <laughs> Richard Schulte was a Harvard ethnobotanist who came here in the 1940s um, after studying the peyote religion for his master's work, he became fascinated by these uh, indigenous plant medicines and came here and spent years trucking around the jungle and kind of like, well, whatever you're having, I'm having. And so exposed himself to a wide range of psychoactive plants and of, of the world's diversity of psychoactive plants Three quarters of them are here in, in Amazonia and uh, wow. this part of the New World. So this is a, a, a real hotbed of these plants which are part of traditional culture. They're also part of this kind of renaissance or this interesting mix that's taking place. I don't know who came up with the number, but I've heard it from a couple of directions that there are over 100 ayahuasca retreat centers here in the greater area of, of, of Iquitos to Pacalpa. <laughs> and most of those are operated by gringos from foreigners who mm -hmm. will hire or otherwise engage a local corandero, uh, a shaman, um, and oftentimes you get their family too. So you'll have a, you'll have a group of folks who are part of the ancient traditions working with folks with dreadlocks and tattoos and trying to figure out what their place in the world is, all stirred together in this muddy mix of psychoactive uh, plant medicines. The principal sort of the MO, the modus operandi here for, traditionally is the dieta, the diet. And you come and you stay in a quiet place and under the, under the eye of a trained indigenous or mestizo specialist, you are introduced to a plant that they recommend, saying you've got liver problems or you've got schizophrenia problems or you've got, you know, everybody's got problems. Mm. Uh, everybody who comes here seems to, uh, originally came for healing and now it's, it's more, well, it's, it, it's looking more like tourism all the time. Mm. Not to fault any of the people who've taken the trouble to, to get their young butts down here, or not so young, <laughs> uh, see people of all sorts who, 
all walking down the street who are like, well, okay. And they sort of, they pass through Iquitos on their way to and from the uh, plant medicine healing centers. Hmm. For instance, I'll be going out tomorrow to a friend of mine, David Hewson. Um, he's been here for a dozen years, built from the ground up a beautiful um, plant medicine healing center called Amaru Spirit. And right now he has a group of a dozen people from around the world who are coming here for dieta, um, who are, and part of the dieta process is you drink ayahuasca every couple of days, every couple of nights. Mm. And the, the active ingredient, the dimethyltryptamine in there, which is a neurochemical, serotonin-like neurochemical, sort of tunes you to the plants whose effects otherwise might be kind of subtle. So you're using one plant to open your ability to learn from another plant. Hmm. It sort of helps us Western knuckleheads to kind of, you know, come to our, our sixth senses and be able to tune in better. The other part of it is you're living, you're having a very simple diet in a very quiet and simple place. So the commitment is typically two weeks to a month of chilling in your hut or your room and, um, and doing this process of, of dieta or dieting, as they call it. And it's super healthy. I mean, I, you know, um, sometimes people freak out because it's just a little bit too quiet, you know. And one of the things that's, <laughs> that, that they do is, all right, welcome to Amaru Spirit. Give me your cell phone. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> so the first, the first detox is digital. Yeah. And that's one of the hardest things on people. Yeah. Um, yeah, we've become reliant on this psychologically, you know absolutely necessary and mm -hmm. here with the broad floodplain they actually in the in the most surprising places you get pretty good coverage so because there's no obstacles <laughs> um, right. so yeah hand over your cell phone um, start a cleansing diet and then go into uh, the deeper water is what people come here for and you know God bless them there it's it's not easy or fun for the most part um, and when they get back to town, of course, they're off to the restaurants and, you know, <laughs> keep back up where they left off. But that's okay. It's all part of, all part of the, the plant medicine world because this is so different hmm. than um, the streets of Seattle. We, we have kind of a joke that this is it's just a giant movie set. Um, <laughs> you're seeing some guy that's one generation from, you know, the... the 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 bowl haircut and the and the and the blowgun, you know, fixing your computer or driving a moto taxi, wow. uh, and I mean these are clearly beautiful in, in the indigenous people and in their own way, it's really quite naive and they're thrown into this modern uh, matrix and just watching them try to make sense of it all is a is a as a sidewalk sociologist it's a never ending source of fascination just to do people watching here <laughs> you know and everybody who ended up here we have in the in the uh, in a century prior the uh, the history of the rubber tappers and the city of Iquitos was created as a mercantile town where right. uh, things that look like Mississippi river boats left with large amounts of rubber just as 
the you know as the markets for it evolved as vehicles with tires and so forth came to pass. And that piece of history was so brutal, brutal. The people who who conquered and and bewildered the the indigenous people to do this work for them um, did it at in the in the most like horrendous ways. So what we have is a legacy. There's kind of like these ghosts that hang around here. And there's this old colonial tumble-down architecture that is, you know, just full of ghosts. And, and, and literally, uh, for folks who, who can sense these sorts of things, this place is just, it's full of ghosts. <laughs> wow. Um, so... Thanks. It's, of, it's a of very who of the of the indigenous people is a feeling or the, colonials or people, just the indi indigenous hmm. people who were murdered hmm. and hmm. literally dissembled limb by limb. Your first defense for not showing up for it with enough rubber at the end of the day was to have an arm cut off or a hand cut off with a machete, and uh, and it, it just went on from there. Um, absolutely, a chapter that no European could ever be. Could it could ever make any rational uh, yeah. <laughs> excuse for? Were these European or U.S. corporations in in general? Who were the big players? British, that... British and American. Uh, British were the some of the the main ones. So, mm -hmm. uh, but of course they came from Spain and they came from Portugal. They came from all the conquistador countries, um, and this was sort of the last, you know, the last conquest that happened. You know the. Uh, the conquer of the of the Incas happened, um, all, you know, some centuries. So we have three centuries of of folks being beat down pretty badly, and yet there's a resilience that is, you know, more than admirable. It's it's you got to hand it to these people. Yeah. Um, and where where do we do we find it now today, Mike? Sorry, I don't want to inter interrupt you, but I'm ahead. just curious. You know, we've seen, I think, the common person probably here in the U.S. or Canada or, or Europe. You know, we saw movies that were about the Amazon and about, you know, plant medicine discovery. And I think... Uh -huh. Emerald, Emerald Forest and so you know, forth. A fair amount of us hear about people, yeah, going in for, for ayahuasca is obviously, you know, a fairly yeah. common thing or you hear about it in popular and personal culture. But where where does that leave us today in this world of, you know, it seems like a long time since there's been a big discovery, you know, is is the knowledge exhausted of the Amazon? Is it barely tapped? Where What is the, the, no. the current that's, scene and status? That's, that's a great question because... We see this as, I mean, Schultes and and his grad student, Schultes died in 1999, and he has a whole kind of a, a guys who were pretty well-known grad students of mm. his who also came down here. Uh, Mark Plotkin, uh, Wade Davis, uh, Tim Plowman, uh, other, uh, Andrew Weil, uh, came here as students of uh, of Schultes, and they did ethnobotany sort of in the traditional way. You find these indigenous folks, and you uh, um, you know you you interview them, and then you then they share with you what they what they know, and they're generous about that. 
Then came a period of what we could call the biopiracy period, where pharmaceutical companies sent people down. And Schultes was sent by the U.S. government to look at um, a first alternative plants that also had latex could be used for making rubber during World War II, because our, our, by then the rubber industry had moved to Southeast Asia, and the Japanese inter, inter, intercepted the, our supply of rubber, and we needed that for the war effort. The drugs that have come out of traditional medicine here are not well known. We have a, you know, we have you know, quinine. We have a, we have a few front page things, but as much as anything, later in the 60s and 70s, pharmaceutical companies sent people down to do bioprospecting more at the molecular basis because the Western view is, you t you show me a medicine that you use for this purpose. I'll find the molecule inside there that is the active ingredient, and then I'll either synthesize that or find some some way to get it really cheap. Mm. That has resulted, and the term for that, when you don't give back, is called biopiracy. Mm -hmm. We're involved in bioprospecting, and baked into our model is taking the knowledge that we receive, not only from the people that we are able to interview, but from the, the database of the last few decades of people who've been gathering information. And it's a lot. It's, it's an amazing treasure trove of printed you know, scientific literature. So we have folk knowledge, we have a, a, a scientific database. And then we have guys like my friend Slocum, who I call them the synthesists. These may be gringos, they may be mestizos, but these are people who have sort of taken the pieces of traditional plant-based medicine and begun to do their own, you know, very informal clinical studies, began doing healing work, began applying these medicines to people and observing how they work to try to figure out dosage, combination, duration, anything that a, that a, medical uh, pharmaceutical company would do is in in drug discovery um, is done informally here but it's also done effectively so where we're at today is with sort of a lot of knowledge but what to do with it and how to get it to market and once it's been taken to market how to apply the principles of fair trade and intellectual property rights to the folks that you get it from. Mm. It's kind of easy as an ethnobotanist. You go out and visit with the Matsis tribe and they tell you about this frog venom that they use and you say, okay, take that back, take it to the lab, very interesting, has, has value. But when it's something that's sort of floating in the zeitgeist, in the, in the common pool of knowledge, who do you owe intellectual property payment? Who do you pay for the mm. rights? I mean, who really owns this stuff? Because when we get a, we get, and now I'm a little bit on my soapbox, but I think it's, I think it's, it's pertinent. When you get lawyers involved <laughs> and they say, you owe these people intellectual property rights. And not only that, you owe them for the damage that's been done in the past and we're going to sue you. You go to these folks who are nice people with big smiles and oftentimes not many teeth. And they say, look, this is, we don't own this. As much as anything, these are gifts from the world of the plants to us. We're not trying to buy and sell this. Uh, and so they sort of give it away. 
how do we respond in a way that is in kind in the same sense of generosity and it isn't built around people suing each other over intellectual property rights as we would do in the north this yeah. is a big question that's on the on the table right now and sort of in our interest group because we we have you know lawyers who are saying we've got to give back to these people and we owe them and and, and we have to give them x percent of whatever but in many cases taking a plant medicine to the pharmaceutical world doesn't end up in it's kind of like venture capital you know one in 15 might actually turn into something to do the clinical trials to become fda approved is 50 to 60 million dollars and yeah. and chasing down something that might help you um you know urinate better might or might not make the cut as a as a viable product so a lot of this plant medicine doesn't really have this big time front page pocket lining market value it's much more subtle than that hmm. so i think the 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 psychotourism as i call it the people coming here to do their own work let's call it medical tourism mm -hmm. um is really uh, is really one of the very best ways that this can become monetized, and that the value can be shared in the communities. Because I mean, these folks are getting used to seeing gringos with funny clothes and tattoos and dreads and stuff, putting <laughs> down the river alongside yeah. of them, and you know, and getting off at one of these stops, and and then they come back with, uh, and so there is a very interesting cultural mixing that's happening right now, and it's 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 very cool. I mean, Sometimes, you know, you've seen enough people with dreads and tats, you've seen enough, but that's okay with attitude and, you know, 18 things tied to their arms and legs and, you know, and all their recent <laughs> sapo, all, the, all their, you know, anyhow, it gets to be a little much sometimes, but that's okay. <laughs> well, do you We're think... trying to go and work with the, with the, uh, let me, let me quickly boil down our mission. Yeah, please. That's what I want to know. And, and, and as you boil down your mission, how you might impact that community and how you might impact the lives of people listening to this, you know, I, we hear at the yeah. path forward, we're really focused on what is our path forward and our solutions and why, you know, your mission lay that out and why that's Im important and might impact someone listening. The two words that I've boiled down our mission to is bioprospecting looking for plants and other species. I'll get to the other species maybe, uh, or maybe that's a topic for another time. Mm. There are fungi, there are frogs, there's a whole bunch of things, but we'll stick with plants for now. And the other operational word is talent scouting. I and some of my colleagues believe that the best way that we can pay back, in fact, pay forward is to identify in the in the rural villages in the communities the young people who have a bent towards science and a connection to plants so that we have a scholarship program that they can come in from the communities we have the the university here unap university universidad nacional de la amazonia peruana mm. is the is the university here in iquitos and they can come and study plant medicine um at a scientific level with all due respect to the traditional knowledge and what we're asking of them and we're kind of brainwashing them to, as we, best we can that, you know, this isn't your way to leave where you came from. This is your way to go back to and pay forward uh, and, and sustain and grow and actually advance the plant medicine knowledge of your people and your place. 
So they will be returning to from whence they came with knowledge of botany, with knowledge of chemistry. At the end of the day, what we can really do to benefit the local communities is to find ways that they can generate their own culturally appropriate economic development. Essentially, rather than have, and if you said, this species here, we want it, go get it, we'll pay you. They will bring the last one in without a second thought. I mean, there's, you know, this, they're, they're people like people anywhere. They'll go mine the last, the last one and say, well, I can't find any more. Uh, what else do you want from me? Mm. The, the alternative to that is to actually begin cultivating these plants. Having said that, these folks here in the Amazon basin are not farmers. I mean, generally, it's kind of like taking Native Americans on the Pacific coast where I'm from and saying, okay, let's all farm now. One in 20 is going to go say, what a great idea. I get it. Mostly not. These are hunter-gatherers. These are fishermen. These folks, they'll certainly, given, given a system, an agroforestry-type system, where they have a mixture of plants and markets at different times because they love loading stuff onto boats. These are, these are not lazy people. But as far as seeing them themselves as farmers or trying to turn them into that, it's just not happening. So by creating culturally appropriate production systems for plants and herbs that have value, we'll be able to help these communities help themselves. And, you know, a lot of NGOs, non-government organizations come here with the best of intentions and, and you know, hand out things to people. And, you know, there is nothing wrong with a great water system in your village. God bless the Lions Club. They've, mm. they've done an amazing job here. God bless the Rotary. Uh, they've done an amazing job here. But when, after they leave, how do people generate some money once they've, you know, you know got clean water and some and electricity? And uh, what comes next? And that rural economic development that's culturally sensitive and appropriate, that's what comes next. Wow. That's a great, a great description of what's possible there and, and their path forward. That's incredible. And how would, if we, if, if that were built, as you establish this, what is it that could be of value, like I said, to, to those listening? I mean, either than, you know, it feels good for me to think that the, the lungs of the earth of the Amazon and the indigenous people that have been so completely colonized and, and, you know, how do you say yeah. had a, a genocide occur to them? I don't think whether, yeah, whether it was done with a machete or just simply old fashioned hegemony, mm -hmm. you know, just cultural overwhelmingness. Yeah. But uh, it seems like an order, bright, shiny object yeah, <laughs> that there does seem to need to be some mutual benefit though yeah. to, to larger markets in, in the industrialized world. How do, how do, what do you see there? What's, how would it impact someone here listening other than feeling good to do that or would it be them taking themselves like you said for more of this a plant medicine tourism rather than something that fits in a capsule you know we're a new nonprofit covid sort of stopped us just as we were raising the sales we have a, a friend for a number of years and and a friend of my colleague Dennis McKenna for for almost 40 years as a as a fellow named Juan Ruiz and Juan is an indigenous guy who ended up, he's sort of the poster child for what I just described. He ended up at university. He became one of the most knowledgeable botanists in the whole mid-Amazon basin. And 
and yet he knows, you say, Juan, we want to go get some, and we're in the boat, and we're in some village, and he knows who to talk to, and they've, oh, they've got a stack of it right there, or, or they'll get it, or they'll get it for you, or specimens of different things. So Juan is a, is a living treasure, yeah, an encyclopedia of not only botanical knowledge, I mean, he can look at the bark and tell you what the tree is, and I won't go into how humbling it is for an amateur botanist to be both in the presence of this diversity and have the friendship of a guy like Juan Ruiz, who is retired two months ago. He's going to go on a minuscule pen from a, from a small salary to a minuscule pension. Mm. And the saying that has been, it, there's, there's, there's real truth to it. And we attribute it generally to Mark Plotkin of the Amazon Conservation Fund is that when a medicine person dies, it's like a library burning. Yeah. What's in their head is lost. Um, and I mean, Juan, an amazing guy, he's my age, right around 70. He doesn't have understudies. There haven't been people who showed up and said, I want to know what you know. I want to carry this thing forward. That hasn't happened. Surprising to me. I mean, there are people, and we have a young botanist in our in our on our science team, Ricardo Zarate, who is altogether the smart guy that that Juan is, and he's still early in his career. So, what we're doing, and what we're inviting people to contribute to doing, our 501c3 is is about to go up here in about two weeks from right now, as a matter of fact, is to sit down with Juan. He's the curator for the largest herbarium in the region. And an herbarium is like a library of actual plant specimens, dried, mounted on sheets with the species name, where and when collected and by whom. It's a reference library of actual plants. So, but to sit, but, but it means nothing without the mind of a guy like Juan Ruiz to sit down and then tell you stories. Mm. As they say in Hawaii, talking story is some of the most powerful, deepest source of cultural knowledge. So we're going to sit Juan down. He's agreed to do this for as many hours as he can stand. And he's a very talkative guy and go out in the field um, and just gather his knowledge into a video format so that we can uh, archive it, um, you know, come what may. When when uh, his brother and sister died of COVID, but he didn't. We really realized how close this all is. Mm. Um, wow. I mean, we're all facing our immortality, but mm -hmm. um, this knowledge is super valuable. So that's our first project out of the box. Another one that's, that's in the wings is one of these synthesis. I use that term of a, of a person who's come here, become enamored and committed to learning from the indigenous and mestizo people. Uh, a guy named Peter Gorman, who's been coming here for 35 years. He came every year for all those years and is now, he's also, he's, he's 70 right now and not in such great physical condition. He did a trip up the Yavari River, which is down on the Brazilian border downstream from here. And what he wants to do is to go back to the same places that he botanized 25 years ago and see who is doing the work now? Is it lost? Is it continuing? Wow. Uh, has the ecology changed? Um, what's going on? So it's a, a retrospective view, which will be his last trip up there. Uh, it's pretty clear. So we're putting together the funding to do this. And of course, a, 
uh, a gathering documentary, you know, video and, and as well as plant material to later be made into a documentary. So this is like raw material gathering. Yeah. And yeah. it'll be and it'll be Peter Gorman's la swan song, his his last visit to the Amazon. So I'm really trying. I'm working with his uh, project manager to try to. Uh, drum up some funds to do that as well. Coming up here at the end of January, so it's coming right up. Hmm. These are fascinating stories. I hope we can continue to follow <laughs> for sure. Yeah, and just yeah. these these great happen to be men, individuals of this knowledge, and and it does seem precious, just as knowledge of the Amazon and the Earth. And I assume the Western, how do we make this all work and, and impact our lives is that yeah. somehow in, in the future, there's, there's the potential of even that one in 15 of some plant knowledge yeah. that can help some group of people. Or, or I even wonder, and this is awfully speculative, that as our medicine in the industrialized world becomes more related to our genetics maybe we'll find certain plants that work for certain genetic groups if we have this knowledge. Well, that's, that's, a, that's a, a very interesting point. One of the leading ayahuasca centers here is, a, is called the Ayahuasca Foundation, and its director and founder is a, a friend named Carlos Tanner. And Carlos has you know, got a science mind. He, you know, he lives in, in Massachusetts, comes here a good part of the year, has built a beautiful, if anybody wants to come to the four-star retreat center, uh, Ayahuasca Foundation, which you can Google, is, is it. Mm. And not only have they done a fabulous job of, of taking care of the uh, indigenous village next door, and the whole operation has now been included into a new national park. Wow. Uh, so one of the things that Carlos has begun doing is doing a DNA swab of people when they come and they leave from their retreat. Because we see such remarkable, uh, you know, uh, quote, impossible, miraculous healings, cancer cured. What is going on at the DNA level? So he's beginning a database for this to begin to try to understand, are there some actual measurable epigenetic effects or is this all just a, a massive placebo effect facilitated by these maestro plants who are convincing us that we're, that we're smarter, better, healthier, and <laughs> than we come here believing is, is, is the case. No, we believe there's something really going on at a genetic level that is measurable. We just have to start using more sophisticated tools. Our set of tools right now is so amazing, the things that we can measure. Um, whereas Juan and the herbarium are dried plant specimens pressed and identified, now we can do DNA sampling and coding for the plants. And part of this work in the next couple of decades will be to do the DNA. Because if we're gonna, for instance, I'm giving you my whole spiel here. I love it. Uh, That's why we're, gonna, we're here. That's why we're, we're here. If we're gonna have people grow these things for us, we need to, to decide which of the varieties, because there's so much diversity, even within a species here, that if we're gonna begin, this is, it's the birth of, of agriculture. This is like going back 10,000 years and picking the wild grass, it's gonna be wheat. Wow. <laughs> or, the, or the little, wow. uh, yeah. 
So we have this opportunity now and the tools to do this. We, we don't need a thousand years. We, we can do this in, in a couple of years uh, and actually help these people grow plants that have the most uh, of the interesting compound. I'll give you an example that's right here right now and I'll be bringing samples back with me. There is a, a little um, waist high plant called cocona that's in the in the Sol solanaceae in the tomato potato family that is grown all around here and yet wherever you go they're either red or they're orange or they're square they look like roma tomatoes or they look like all the varieties so the local research institute here has gone out and done over the last 10 years and in particular the last three years has taken all the varieties and and selected them for some very interesting compounds that are I, I I'm I'm being a little generous by saying this is the cure for diabetes but this is the treatment for pre-diabetes wow and all you have to do is drink a bottle of this pretty darn good tasting stuff in the morning for two weeks and your blood sugars your are just like a come into balance and that is okay that's interesting an example <laughs> yeah you th that might be interesting up north yeah um, yeah and it might have some value in the marketplace but right now there we've gotten they have gotten and we're working with these with these folks um they, they're doing the animal studies next will be the next level will be human studies mm -hmm. and for that we need to raise raise some uh, we need to raise some funding because everything runs, all oh, this place is so crazy. <laughs> money comes from money comes from Lima, flows out for these projects. Yeah. Few million soles, and the first thing is all the crooks, the corruption just sucks it off the top. Mm. And so, well-meaning and well-funded projects seldom see the light of day or arrive in the marketplace just because of the the culture. <laughs> I'll just leave it at that. Yeah. Well, people, I think we see that in many places in the world. You know, we've seen that in a lot of yeah. places oh, yeah. That, oh, yeah. that particularly in the, you know, quote unquote, second or third world. I mean, we see that this is what happened, I think, in part in the Middle East and Afghanistan yeah. is that there are these like established veins or rivers of this cash flow from the government. And there are systems and groups organized in order to, to live off of that. And, and the results, yep. not as important, perhaps. Correct. Because they don't really, you know, the, the uh, it's, it's human age. Yeah. I, I, well, I think I what you're saying, in. though. We'll the, save that for another that's, time. Well, that's <laughs> a part of this conversation that we're opening up, though, is the path forward is how do we actually get the knowledge of these plants and, and turn it into benefits for ourselves yeah. that really, like you said, as this mutual benefit to, to certainly people in the industrialized world and where there's sources of funding and to not just colonize the indigenous yeah. peoples of the Andes in Peru, but, but, in, but there's a potential there to, to help heal and make something available globally in our society and, and not do it in this broken way. Yes. I, you know, I, because, because I'm, yeah, because I'm of that mindset, I can see a little bit naive. I, I admit, uh, still, but I can see the path forward. Mm. We can do everything from 
blockchain. You know, we, we have ways of transparency now that nobody can bullshit their way through. That's mm-hmm. a very interesting time. We could set up, I mean, and, and they have. There are cost accounting systems here that are very good. What happens is it gets skimmed way up at the top as it's coming out of Congress. Well, is there anything new about that? No. <laughs> um, but here on the ground, the, 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 the next link, they do beautiful studies. They do good science. It's valid. But they have no idea how to get something to market. Yeah. Uh, no idea how to get something to market. And that's where sort of crowdfunding kind of ideas can actually make a difference. As, as we go forward here, Will, we will offer folks some opportunities to take a closer look at, at what good behavior can yield and what this is part of the talent scouting part of this. Mm. You know, we, we're looking for honest people who want to do good in the world and, and who it, it's easy to become cynical. Mm-hmm. It's easy to become cynical. And that cynicism sort of is the nurturing ground for corruption. If people will refuse to get cynical, who will insist on honesty, transparency, and the greater good, we can we can turn this thing around actually in quite a hurry. Yeah, yeah. And that and NGOs can be a, a key part of this. And 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 I'm telling we have a slew of them. There's more. There's at least as many NGOs as there are ayahuasca centers down here. <laughs> uh, people from all over the yeah. world here aiming to do good with you know with bright shiny eyes and 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 the and great hearts, but they end up not knowing how to culturally get the most traction. Yeah. Let's let's keep telling this story. Let's keep weaving these yeah. pieces together because there is a path forward here and there there is yes, there this is. story to tell to impact those people that are coming even with good intentions and those that it can impact yep. the governments yep. uh you know of the industrialized world and of of Peru and the other Andes nations. Yeah, we probably talk people's ears off for now but um, <laughs> well we've certainly introduced it I, I i i hadn't expect our conversation honestly to be quite this rich and to open up everything you're doing and we will you know put up links on the website and alongside the episode to the endeavors that you're doing as soon as the 501c3 this is perfect timing yep perfect as, timing. as we release that and and offer that up to people and you know again i think that our part at the path forward is is helping reveal and document the transparency of what you're talking about and perhaps having people who are really turned on or engaged, uh, you know, come and physically visit or participate in some way, right? If they're, if they're so in, inclined that we keep this, we do that hard work that you're saying to not be cynical and to really cause some change. Yep. Yep. Be the change you wish to see, <laughs> but do it judiciously. <laughs> mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, and practically and realistically. Yeah. Yep. That's beautiful. All right, man. Hey, thanks a lot. I love it. We got we got a little bit of the, the distance there, a little bit of the background of Peru. Maybe we'll have to have you go out with the microphone and just record some of the street or we'll get some of the pictures because uh, it's a, a beautiful, visceral picture. Yes, sir. I'd be glad to. Glad to help. All right. Well, thanks. Thanks again, Mike. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll keep you in the field. I know you're going to be back up here and we're going to have another conversation soon about uh, one of our other, other solutions that impacts viruses and yep. pathogens in, uh, in HOCL and hypochlorous acid. Right on. Right on. 
To be continued, as you say in the comments. That's right. To be continued. <laughs> All right, Will. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for the time. Take care and travel safe.